afternoon, everyone. My name is Lily Lam, and I am the Principal and Regional Vice President of Growth for the One Digital's West Region. I welcome all of you today to our employer advisory session. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to share how we will truly appreciate the time and energy you're investing with us today. Uh, we would like to know that this support discussion is part of a really large conversation around deciphering ways to control costs uh, without compromising your employee benefit packages or the perception of your employee benefits value. So um, we are excited you're here today. And today I'm joined by my two esteemed colleagues, and I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. I'm April Houston. I'm a managing principal with One Digital here in Georgia, and we work with several hundred clients of all sizes and funding types. And in the past few years, we've had the pleasure of working with Arcs Connection and optimizing many of our clients' pharmacy spend and their PBM contracts. And it's been great for employees and great for our employer clients as well. My name is Richard Lowe. I'm the clinical account executive with RX Connection, um, one digital pharmacy consulting practice. I'm the clinical resource for client decision support. My background is that I am a pharmacist um, in retail pharmacy, in grocery and mer uh, mass merchandising. And I'm also the lead contact for our pharmacy accounts and prospects in the Southeast Territory. Great, thank you, April and Richard. Um, Thank you all again. Uh, we're excited to dive in today's session. Um, as a quick reminder to all of our uh, viewers today, we're going to do our best to adjust the questions behind the scenes, and we're going to allot some time at the end to answer those training questions. Um, so go ahead and please feel free to uh, enter your questions into the channel as well. So let's get started. Um, for many business leaders today, uh, deciphering the ways to control costs without compromising their employee benefit package is, is crucial uh, to survive now, uh, post-pandemic. Uh, prescription drugs are not only an integral part of the benefit package, but also to ensure really quality health care uh, for their employees. And when looking into control costs, uh, employers should be evaluating their organization's benefit spend related to medical, pharmacy claims, and fixed costs. Uh, pharmacy benefits typically represent, I want to say about nearly 30% of a company's total healthcare expenses. And it's predicted to increase roughly, I think, probably 6% annually all the way through 2025. That means more than almost half a trillion dollars will be spent annually on prescription drugs. I gotta say that again, a trillion dollars will be spent annually to spend on prescription drugs. It's just a phenomenally large number. And I think that's why we're all here today to really talk about that. Uh, business leaders and HR leaders are already expected to have rising costs and benefits. Um, in two, 2019, the Kaiser Family Foundation annual employer survey found that the average family benefit costs increased 22% over the last five years. Can you imagine all of that hard work people are putting into how much more they're having to spend on healthcare, and 54% uh, since 2009. So it's, it's a really large number. Uh, employer health spend are already expected to rise another 5% this year, and that was really, to be honest, before the pandemic. So now, this is our need to really be uh, implementing some effective cost management strategies and solutions for even more dire reasons and really ensuring employees can access the necessary support and resources required 
to keep them and themselves and their family healthy. So during the session today, uh, we'll be discussing industry-specific terms and roles. So before we dive in, I really think it would be helpful to kind of help our uh, attendees today be familiar with some of the industry and the players and some of the verbiage, because I know Richard's going to talk like, like a pharmacist and I'm just going to go way over my head. So that may be, Richard, you can kind of level set us and help us kind of you know, go over some of the terms. And so let's start off. Like, Richard, could you tell me what is a pharmacy benefit manager? Right. I think a lot of the terms just they coincide with uh, medication names. You can't even pronounce them or even what they do. But uh, for pharmacy benefit manager, I think if you polled employees, especially what that is, they have no clue probably. Um, but if you talk about pharmacy benefits, then you're talking more of their language. It's something where I think employees exercise that benefit way more than um, any other healthcare benefit. But the essential role of a pharmacy benefit manager, it, it comes down to this really complicated and convoluted system with many players, whether it's manufacturers, wholesalers, doctors, pharmacies, it all kind of combines and there's so many. So who, who puts it all together? And that's where the pharmacy benefit manager or PBM comes into play. Um, they were originally created to, to drive appropriate drug utilization, um, generics, eliminate drug waste, um, really increase compliance, and really ensure the safety of members and employee well-being. Um, however, since we do realize, and what you alluded to, just the increase in spend, that um, their other integral role is to negotiate and serve as this middleman for negotiating discounts and rebates. Um, and unfortunately, the latter has taken um, probably a more of a presence in, in today's society and in the media as well. Um, but yes, that's, that's our job is to really uncover the truth about it and what employers should consider. Great. I mean, how many PBMs are out there? So back in 2013, there were 60 different PBMs. I think the, uh, the market saw healthcare is huge and that there's a huge need for it as well. However, with vertical integration, and when I mean vertical integration, it's basically consolidation, just eliminating a lot of the players. It got cut in half in just three years. It went from 60 to 30. And then beyond that, you just wanted to look at the large three PBMs. They take up 70% of the entire market space. So meaning consolidation may appear better, larger, is for less cost, um, may not necessarily be the truth around that. So definitely less players. So less players. I mean, there has been obviously consolidation, as you mentioned, and the three players that I think Richard's referring to, I believe are Caremark, uh, Express Scripts, and OptumRx. Is that right, Richard? That's correct. Okay, so they take up 70%. So then the rest of the market space taking up 30%. But I think employers just need to know there's options, right? I think that people maybe feel like they're only being presented maybe with the top three. Um, they're maybe being presented like a pharmacy coalition of so forth. So um, that's, it's really interesting, Richard. It's great. Um, right now, I mean, the, the projected compound annual growth of rate of the U.S. pharmacy benefit market, I think from 2019 to 2025 is over 7%. So, like, what does that really mean for, you know, all the employers out there and our, our, our guests today? So, for me, I'm like, in the era of the PBM consolidation, uh, skyrocketing specialty drug costs, overutilization, 10 to 15% of pharmacy spend is lost. It just goes down the drain, forfeited, call it whatever you want. And then every year, due to really unaffordable pharmacy contracts, their employers trust the PBM 
all the advice that they're getting to provide the best solutions to contain their their organization's pharmacy spend. What I think, what I've seen is what employers fail to realize is that the PBM's interests are often in a direct conflict of their own. So I kind of want to spend some time, Richard, in, in April today to kind of examine like the lack of transparency, uh, kind of the PBM self-serving interests that are negatively impacting, you know, uh, the bottom line for employer groups today. So um, I want to kind of dive into some questions about, you know, what are some of the leading problems that you encounter with PBMs today, uh, Richard? Yeah, I think, I think it goes back to just what do we need to know? Um, more education, transparency, um, and what you alluded to, just starting from the from the bottom up, and that's starting really on on contracts and the financial. What's hidden? Um, I I can speak uh, three different languages, but then when I look at the uh, a different pharmacy contract, which is probably 30 pages, it's all this uh, PBM jargon that I had, that to really um, an employer, there's no way to decipher it. It's another foreign language. And is that, you know, is that going to be competitive and advantageous for you? I'm not sure. It seems like a bunch of fine print. So going on from that, it, it really talks about how PBMs generate revenue, um, whether it's from spread pricing, um, not passing through what uh, the payer is actually paying back to the pharmacy and, and the employer getting overcharged for that, um, or just going from a, a term called rebate and rebate revenue, which is a price concession given by the manufacturer for a medication is that passed back through to the employer as well? And those are just um, just a few ways where revenue is generated, but also it's uh, it's hidden. Those are hidden costs um, and also savings, in, in another way to put it, that the employer does not know about. And oftentimes, like you said, in those coalitions, they're proprietary um, and easily could be biased. And just one other point, uh, when you're talking about formularies and just what's driving that, you'll see that some PBMs, they exclude medications, which can be really, really good because we're just getting out waste. Um, some of these high cost, low value medications, but is that the truth or are these formularies driven by what can drive higher rebates where the PBM can retain those? That was great, Richard. So I'm going to take a step back and maybe dig into some of those answers you indicated there. So maybe the first question for you is, um, what is spread pricing? Yeah, so spread pricing, that's, um, let me give you an example, because uh, I, w I was going to go with designer handbags, but, you know, let's just go with uh, with wine, right? Everybody might need some wine during the pandemic, and it's essentially it's like a, a giant markup. So what, what does the drug actually cost? So if you walk into your normal pharmacy and the patient gets a, gets a medication, say for $12, then that's what um, the PBM is going to pay the pharmacy for that medication. However, there's gag clauses and no one can disclose what they actually uh, paid for it. And then what they end up, end up charging to the employer is $20. So in that $8 delta is the spread that they have made on that one prescription. And do, uh, is that a transparent number that employers would have access to is how much the spread is between the actual costs and actually what's being paid? Uh, it is not. It is not. There's definitely contractual obligations that performance needs to reflect 
But at the end of the day, it just all gets into this muddy water and you have, there's no way to tie it back in, um, which we call a traditional pricing arrangement. Got it. The dark ocean of pharmacy. Okay, I'm getting there. How about pharmacy coalitions? We touched a little bit on it, uh, Richard, really quick. And I, I think the what I just kind of really know is, is there a benefit to pharma coalitions? Like, I guess people are kind of thinking the bigger the coalition, the bigger buying power I have. You know, what are your thoughts on, on that? Right. Um, that's a great point. Why do coalitions even exist? I think with the buying power, you do have more negotiating power and can generate more savings that way. But I think a fundamental truth that we need to touch on is what's good for many in your coalition might not be the best for your individual plan. So quite frankly, you may um, not need this coalition arrangement. And also, it's biased, proprietary, and then your lack of basically taking control of your pharmacy benefit um, is really out the door. You're at the mercy of what that coalition arrangement is. Okay, great. Since you already kind of brought it up, I mean, maybe let's just dive, in, dive into the rebate conversation. Um, I think I think for the most part, people understand what a rebate means, right? But maybe touch on it. Can you just touch on it, reach it. What's, what's a rebate and, and where does it kind of really lie in, in, in a contract and how do employers buy into it or not buy into it? All right. So rebates, they work just like when you go shopping. Um, you, you get something and there's a, you can do a mail-in rebate. Uh, it essentially works that way. Like I said, it's a price concession from the manufacturer and they're mostly on brand name medications. So when you fill a brand name medication, then a rebate comes back. But to that point, what truly is most cost effective and that might not be the brand name medication. So I would probably encourage employers listening today, are you generating a large rebate, but can we uncover where is that coming from? Are we truly buying more to save more? Instead, can we look at, are we use, really using the most appropriate medication? Um, and it resonates with me being a pharmacist, getting the right, right patient on the right drug that does the same thing and is also at the lowest net cost um, for that member. I mean, what it makes me think about, Richard, is, is, is the rebates driving consumer behavior? Like, are we, you know, are doctors aware of these rebates? Or, you know, who's, you know, how does that work? Like, how, if it's obviously generating some sort of discount, employees are like, wow, this is lowering my copay. But, you know, how does this really generate consumer behavior about the, the right drug they should be taking? Well, First, do they even have a choice is the main thing. Is that on the formulary for having a choice of a lower cost generic or is the decision uh, being driven by something else from the PBM? Physicians, most of the time, um, they may not know what the cost of a medication is. I will argue the other other piece of it um, from an HR standpoint. I, I honestly think most employees have that inherent trust to their doctor and they're going to take um, what may appear to be the latest and greatest. Uh, but, you know, I, I will argue the point that we can't view all medications as a simple commodity like your milk and bread. They're not all, um, you know, something that we have to look at as equal. Makes sense. Okay. Um, maybe I'm going to April sitting there waiting to give us some insight. So April, every year, like 10 to 20% of pharmacy spend is wasted due to really kind of unfavorable pharmacy contracts, just alone, just contracts, not actually talking about the, the claims or prescriptions. Can you shed some light on how this happens and, and what it means for employers? 
Sure. The difference in costs, Lily, to employers is shocking. It can be up to $10,000 per specialty drug from a wasteful contract to a clean contract. And that's especially alarming when you consider that specialty drugs are expected to account for 50% of overall pharmacy costs in 2022. Specialty costs per claim, so per prescription claim, is quadrupled in the price in price over the past 12 years. That's just really astounding. And if 90% of prescriptions that are dispensed are generic and 10% are non-generic, that means a very small percentage of drugs prescribed are driving that cost. So that 10, up to $10,000 per claim on a specialty drug adds up to huge dollars. As far as how it happens, um, I would say there are gains and a total lack of transparency in the system in a number of areas. Richard talked about the lack of insight and transparency, visibility to spread pricing. That's just one of many. There are many employers out there that think they're getting a rebate discount to their admin fees, a level amount every month, but they also aren't having the visibility to the actual rebates. And so there's still a conflict of interest. So there are any number of ways that the contract can be written to include waste or an undue benefit to the PBM. Everybody deserves to make a profit in the for-profit world, but it shouldn't be at the expense of someone's health or total plan costs. I, I can't a thousand percent agree with you, April. I mean, to make matters worse, you already mentioned transparency is not there. Um, federal regulations really hinders employers' ability to really accurately measure the performance and hold them accountable uh, for these kind of promised rebates or discounts or transparency. So, you know, what, what are some things, April, that, you know, employers can do to combat these issues? That's a great question. What I like to tell employers is they can refuse to accept the status quo. We don't have to be part of this broken system. There are opportunities to clean up your contract, provide great benefits, but know what you're spending and where. Contract terms and language, as well as clinical protocols and safeguards can be evaluated by experts in those fields and subjects that are independent and not, you know, with a conflict of interest on one side or the other. And it's not as simple as having a rebate driven or a pass through contract. It's critical that the terms and conditions of the contract are auditable. So we know whether the PBM is performing according to their promise and that they don't allow waste. That was a lot, April. And then maybe if I'm sitting in the, in the audience right now, I'm thinking, well, like, I don't want to do any of that. I don't want to mm -hmm. track and I don't want to know the language. Like who, who would employers rely on to, to really kind of teach them how to really do that? One of the great things for us in working with an independent um, subject matter expert, like a Richard or ARCS Connection is that they are the experts on both the auditing and contract side, the clinical side, and they are also supporting our HR teams with account management. So in no way could we all become experts enough on contracts to go and do our own, you know, every employer go do their own auditing of their contract and negotiation. And you don't have to, but you do need to make sure that someone who is not invested in 
um, it does not have competing priorities is doing that for you. And unfortunately, sometimes a broker or consultant has some gain through your pharmacy arrangement. Certainly the PBM, the insurer, it has become a profit center on self-funded plans that are what we call bundled. So all with one insurer as their administrator and the built-in PBM. Um, so it's hard to trust any of those entities alone. You really do need someone working for you. And 100% of the time, the savings that that yields is worth making that investment. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, April, are you, are you seeing that a lot of the customers that you work with today are, are really understanding, you know, that level of that or, or how much involvement do they have? Like, what are they saying? Um, we're seeing that if we walk into a prospect meeting, you know, a potential new client or a client that has not been evaluating their PBM arrangement and this has been going on for some time. I can easily say that with very few changes and not sacrificing the care of their members, they can save 10 to 15% with the appropriate management. And that is a conservative number. That's what I would say to anyone not managing that cost is that there's 10 to 15% savings without this isn't going to become a second job for your HR team. They're not going to need to become pharmacists. They don't need to hire Richard on staff to facilitate things. We can take care of that for them, but certainly the savings is there. Great. What about you, Richard? What do you, what do you think, you know, employers and customers are, are saying? I think April touched on it perfectly. I think it's a common misnomer that you have to change everything to bring about savings. I think it's really taking a deeper dive into, especially the contracting piece. Is it is it in favor of the vendor or is it back in favor of you, the client? And and building from that, I honestly think where the issue lies is, is really who you ask. Um, you know, if you ask employees, I would venture to say, unless you've been disrupted by um, a prior authorization or just something holding up your access to medication, that they're pretty happy with, with their pharmacy benefits. But then if you point it back on the other side with the employers, um, you know, with the, with the pandemic, everything going on and, and really looking at, at a hard look at costs and the skyrocketing um, drug prices, that there has to be some action taken um, to really mitigate this and, and reduce this to make it sustainable. Uh, so I think it's kind of a, unfortunately, a sort of a battle to keep employees happy, but so to foster the a nice, sustainable environment for your pharmacy benefit. Makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, we're all here. We're still sitting here in the in the pandemic and in COVID, and it's really kind of flipped our world around. You know, maybe start with April. April, how does you know how has the pandemic heightened or impacted pharmacy claims? Sure. What I've observed is that the pandemic has been a powerful reminder that prescription needs and maintenance are more regular interactions for those that are on the medications than visits with their providers. So while many of us put off visits or elective procedures, those that are on serious maintenance medications or needed a medication for an acute condition could not postpone or delay that. So we haven't seen significant changes to claims. You know, they, those have remained relatively constant, um, especially after mid 
March to mid-April and people figured out um, that there were newer opportunities to synchronize their drugs. If they were getting their drugs filled at different times of the month, there were new kind of one-time opportunities to line up those fills and also more convenient home delivery options from your local pharmacy that maybe hadn't been advertised or utilized as much before. So really it has been a constant throughout this period. Great. What about you, Richard? Man, pandemic, right? Um, not, not much positive, but I will tell you what I have appreciated um, in, a, in a roundabout way is the focus back on, on healthcare um, and really the focus on medical professionals, doctors, pharmacists, nurses, anyone clinical. It's really put a heavy emphasis there. Um, and then, you know, in this race for, for a vaccine, um, knowing it is something clinically safe and effective. So really going back to that conversation. And I think that has also expanded, you know, beyond just the clinical side of just healthcare, but it's expanded into the economy. And unfortunately, it's um, even come into uh, the political conversation as well. That being said, I, I will say for we've seen in claims and back to your question, at first, um, from my, my standpoint, I was a little bit worried back in March just with stockpiling. I think I think there was like a shortage in toilet paper, paper towel, soap, everything. Um, so then was there going to be a shortage in medications? And it's something we, we kept an eye on. A lot of the um, refill too soon edits were lifted, meaning you could get your medication uh, whenever you wanted to, and, but which I think was great for access-wise, and a lot of prescriptions shifted over to the mail order, but it's something we wanted to keep an eye on to see if this would continue on and really cause a indirect spike in costs overall. We've seen that settle down. Another piece was drug shortages. Thank goodness for our, um, our supply chain, but really no drug shortages were experienced either. And at the end of the day, we've seen it leveled out. Um, we are keeping um, a close pulse on the mail order and if there will be an impact from that standpoint. I think, um, I think it's great that members now can, can get things through the mail and stay safe, but um, it's something where we need to make sure that continued access to medications is there because priority for us is member well-being. Of course, that's top of mind for sure. Richard, can you like educate me? Like, why is pharmacy spend going up? Are people really taking more drugs or the cost of drugs going up? Like just, I know you mentioned that generic drugs are 90% of what's being dispensed and like, just give me an idea of like, why are they going up? So if you do that quick Google search on skyrocketing drug prices, it'll return everything. But I think you first start with just drug price inflation. That's around six to seven percent. So you already have an increase there. Um, but also just a, a lack of competition. Innovation is pretty stale in some of the traditional medications, meaning non-specialty. But what April touched on, it's a lot driven by that specialty spend. 50% of total spend growing at an alarming rate. Um, and it, it might not even be the, the prices, but just that utilization, meaning usage of specialty medications, it continues to grow 10% year over year. So you could just be talking a handful of employees taking these medications, very few, but really, really, really high costs that can drive spend. Um, you could argue the fact of generics. Well, 
Well, Richard, what about generics? Aren't they lower cost? There's still a lack of competition for a few generics. I would also argue that not all generics are cheap as well. There are some really high cost generics. Um, back when I was working in the pharmacy, I had a patient come up to me and the medication, funny enough, you've heard of it, it's metformin, but it was a, it's for diabetes and, but it was an extended release and it, it's called osmotic formulation, just kind of special how it's released, but it's generic. And how their design, their copay was set up, it was free for them. And for me, I was like, okay, great, free, take, take your medication, compliance is there. But on the other hand, who's paying for it? What's the true cost? That medication can cost upwards of $1,000. Keep in mind, generic medication, but not all generics are, um, are cost effective as well. So it, it's looking at that and also looking if we want to talk about specialty uh, you may or may not have heard of a term called biosimilars. This gets a little bit more technical, but they are really similar to specialty medications, and they're sort of a generic formulation of a specialty medication. Um, unfortunately, with government regulation and patent protection, that a lot of these generics aren't available, or these biosimilars are available in the marketplace to drive down specialty costs. So definitely a combination of issues uh, in our industry and it's something that we have to continue to be forward thinking um, and be proactive to to control these costs well good segue let's let's talk about specialty um our employers at the mercy of specialty spending uh whatever the doctor wants to give and it's high cost are, are they at the mercy of it so originally when you talk specialty medications, exactly what, why are we even, what are specialty medications? Well, they are for your, the high risk population, um, really low amounts of your population taking these. And, and I was always on board with the thinking specialty, if it's prescribed, they have to have it. There's nothing I can do. And I just quite frankly have to just brace for it and if I'm the employer and just basically pay for it because we need to not only ensure their well-being but also keep um, you know costs down from hospitalizations, time off, just all those indirect costs. I will say on the specialty side there is a um, what manufacturers provide is assistance in the forms of coupons. So what they do provide with these high costs because specialty medications are very expensive, no one would ever get them. But with these coupons, now employees, um, patients can afford these medications and they come in not only manufactured coupons, but also in different ways like alternate funding, uh, mostly set up by large pharma as well. So there are ways um, to mitigate these costs for specialty medications. Beyond that, Lily though, I will take a step back and let's just uncover back to that primary question do they have to have it? Um, is there anything else available? And that's really the gatekeeper, kind of that prior authorization, meaning, is it appropriate? Is there something cheaper or less costly that is just as effective? And I would argue, yes, I think, you know, members should try these medications. I don't think it should be just the criteria saying, look, a physician prescribed this medication and they have this diagnosis, and then boom, you get that medication. Now, I think there should be a sort of step therapy where patients try um, cheaper alternatives, and it's not really all about costs, because I don't like to make that argument. 
cost, cost, cost. It's also about safety. A lot of these specialty medications can carry um, really dangerous side effects as well. Absolutely. The efficacy of drugs and, and making sure it's effective for people's health is super important. Um, quick question on that, you know, the, the coupons you referred to and for specialty drugs, does employers or insurance companies still pay the pharma for those, even though the member is getting it for free? So the members getting it, it's, it's all about visibility, transparency there. So the member is benefiting it, benefiting from that. But at the same time, an employer should ask the question, well, they're benefiting from it, but I'm still stuck with the really high cost. And you talked about coupons. Is there any way that we can kind of pull that back in on the plan sponsor side? So different PBMs, it varies with their programs, but there are programs available where we can not only bring that back to the plan sponsor side to lower the plan costs, um, but also protect um, from any artificial credit that's given to a member in, in lieu of using a coupon so they can meet their deductible or out-of-pocket max quicker, but they really didn't pay for it. That is a philosophical argument that one should consider. Do you think they should get credit for it? But definitely different ways. And then to the last point, I would argue that a lot of savings are completely left off the table. These manufacturer coupons can be tens and thousands of dollars. And unless there's someone really to tell you or kind of design that setup there, you're just leaving savings off the table that the manufacturer otherwise would have available to you. Great. Oh, you know, April, you talked to you know, many, many employers of various different sizes. Like, do you think employers and, and employees are familiar with these discount cards or coupons that uh, Richard's referring to? I do. I think that many coupons are applied before a member gets to the pharmacy because people like Richard in his former life are looking out for, for the patients coming in and, you know, no more trusted relationship is there in my world, at least, than my local pharmacist who knows me and my family. So if they've applied a coupon, who am I to argue with not paying anything out of pocket? Um, and I think the best program, so they are aware of it. I don't know that employers are always aware of it or how much it is happening or for how many years even on certain drugs. I think the best programs allow when the drug is clinically appropriate, they allow for the member to have that break in their out-of-pocket costs, but they don't credit an amount to their um, out-of-pocket costs on their plan or their deductible, right? So it, they're getting the price break, but they don't get credit as though they've already paid an amount out of their pocket. So it's fair for both sides. Makes a lot of sense. Great. So, Richard, what should employers do to help employees navigate their decisions and costs while they're at their pharmacies? So, you talked about the coupons, but like, what what did what should they do specifically? What should employers do specifically? Yeah, to help their employees. Yeah, it's going to start at education, communication. I I don't know if employees truly understand like we said, even what a PBM is or does and how this all relates to them. At the end of the day, it's really about, can I get my medication from the employee standpoint? Um, but for employers, what they need to look at, and I think what we've touched on today is it really goes beyond financial. It, it goes with a comprehensive, holistic approach that 
you know, you have to look at it from multiple angles. Um, and that looks at clinical service, um, who's on the other end of the PBM when you do have an issue, can that be resolved? It all goes hand in hand. And not only is it going to generate savings, but it, it really establishes and, and helps a return back to um, really the, what we call PBM enhancement, really whispering to them and say, look, this is how a PBM, in our opinion, really should work. And it's how high performing, not only providing discounts and financial advantages, but also clinical advantages and producing healthy outcomes. Great. Richard, I, I, as a consumer myself, you know, with a family and I'm driving down the, the freeway and I see these big billboards for prescriptions or this wonderful, you know, commercial or social media, like, you know, what are your thoughts on what are those drugs and why are they out there? And as an employee, I'm like, I want that. They, it feels and it looks like a new drug, like something that could really help control my diabetes or control my blood pressure. Like, what are your thoughts about those advertisements? Yeah, so a lot of the marketing on these prescription medications, um, I think I've seen it too. If it's like a famous um, golfer or a famous singer from from like the 70s, that that it, it can be very appealing to me that this medication is new. And since it's new, it's going to be better. I, I would also argue that they kind of dim down the <laughs> the noise in, in a lot of the uh, the fine print there. But, you know, is it as effective? Is it something truly innovative? And also what employees don't realize is, do they know it's 5000 or $10,000 for that medication? I think they blast the volume back up when they say you can pay no more than zero or $5. But employers need to be aware, where is that cost going to? Because unfortunately, there's no, uh, there's no free lunch here. Yeah, it's astonishing how much these big pharma companies are spending on advertising. I think it's like a, a substantial amount of money, millions and millions a year, just advertising a drug that comes out. So it's, it's quite astonishing. And unfortunately, it does drive consumer behavior. I mean, the world today of social media, right, Richard? I mean, April, how are you helping employers really kind of navigate what kind of things they should be doing for their employees? Sure. So after they have their pharmacy benefit manager arrangement and agreements and contracts in place with the right clinical oversight, it really is about member engagement and education and empowering people to ask the right questions when they're at their provider, sometimes providing a liaison between the provider and the plan to help them understand what's covered and why and the prior authorization protocols for that particular drug or therapy. I think um, helping helping employees become knowledgeable consumers like we have in so many other areas of our lives. We, you know, unit cost shop and look at reviews and find things out in a number of areas. And it's not any different here. It is um, helping them know that the latest, greatest drug advertised on television may be having side effects that they definitely don't or may make want or it may make them vulnerable to another condition. So making sure that they're educated and empowered um, to make decisions wisely for the plan. And I will add on uh, to what April's saying. It's, it's really taking control back of pharmacy benefits and not, not really being scared of having that conversation because in essence, yes, you do have flexibility. There are ways to reduce costs without affecting um, your members. So uh, at the end of the day, it's really 
can we get that control in there and can we do that confidently and mm-hmm. strategically? Because at the end of the day, it really is trying to uncover everything, just like the title today of pharmacy benefit managers and pharmacy benefits, um, but really not being scared of having that conversation and matching education with action. Absolutely. Well, thank you, April and Richard, for all that amazing insight. Um, I'm going to go and dive into some of these few questions that have been submitted in the chat and have you guys answer them as, as we go through. So here's one of my favorite questions, and I'm going to throw it to both of you guys. It is, what's a wasteful drug? Richard. Well, you may do it. It's going to raise my blood pressure. You're the expert. <laughs> All right. So I think the the poster child that we've all heard of is Duexis. And yes, I will be guilty of dispensing Duexis uh, because, you know, honestly, all it is is ibuprofen. You take you go to your drugstore. It's ibuprofen, four dollars and Pepsodac, eight dollars, your twelve dollar drug. It instantly you combine it together. Now it's three thousand dollars. So, yes, I saw that. But at the end end of the day, I also knew there was a coupon for it that would benefit um, the person standing in front of me that had that prescription, and it would lower it down to, you guessed it, zero dollars. So that's that's a wasteful medication because there, and you you probably ask, why is that even on the formulary? It goes back to um, generating a large rebate, but I will argue that rebate's not going to be large enough to net you back down to under $12 for that medication. Um, we started to see, you know, that was the poster child of yesterday. Most employers have probably heard of that. Now we're looking into high cost of vitamins where they'll add folic acid and vitamin D. Same thing, $3,000. It seems like this super power vitamin that, uh, that would be more efficacious, uh, just better for you all around. But all it is just um, those two ingredients with a high um, price tag with it. So that, that's waste. All right. April, want to add anything to, to Richard's insight there? Thank you. Richard is the uh, expert on the drugs as the pharmacist. I, I copycat and talk about Duexis and Vimovo, which is a very similar drug all the time. But I think his bringing up the vitamin trend that he's seeing points to that it's an ever-evolving thing that is happening and we're having to keep ahead of it. We cannot just say, oh, we fixed it all. We've got the wasteful drugs out. We're good. And I think education is important in this area too, because someone went to their physician and their physician prescribed them Duexis and they trust their doctor and go and get it filled. And why should they question that? But now that we know that it's okay to empower them with information and ask different questions and point out that these two medications are available over the counter. So it is not worth the convenience of being in one pill to pay $4,000 for that drug. Um, It is very eye-opening and a constantly changing market. And Lily, I'll ask the next question. You. <laughs> you probably ask, well, what, what can I do about it as from an employer standpoint? Um, just how, how we approach it here at RX Connection, we do um, have a, it, our program is called RX Defender. Just just think of it as a, um, it's like a dumb drug finder. It just finds, finds all of these opportunities there. 
And you may ask like, you know, look, I get, I get it, but it's not affecting me. It's not, we have really good utilization and uh, you know, our, our members are taking everything appropriately, but there's, we call them games and they pop up everywhere. It's like a game of whack-a-mole, um, just finding out what's the, what's the latest, unfortunately not greatest, and how can we target these from a proactive standpoint as well. So just basically being forward-thinking and being ahead of the game on this. Absolutely. So if we can help any employers, and then one of the questions is, you know, if they want to make an impact and they want to get it right. Um, is there any, what questions should employers be asking their employees in regards to their pharmacy spend? Any of you guys? Um, asking their employees. I think that the best ways to handle management of these plans is to commit to reinvest some of the dividend or the savings that you're getting from more appropriate management of the plan back into the plan. So I would ask employees, are you interested in preserving a great benefit plan over time and being able to sustain competitive benefit package and recruit great coworkers um, and keep your out-of-pocket, your premium deductions low? And if you are, then we're all going to have to work to be better consumers and we'll arm you with everything you need to do that. Great, Richard? Any ideas on what, what employers should be asking employees or talking to employees about to make an impact? I think it's just what April had talked about, really starting with the behavior change. It's going to come down to the education, why we're making these decisions. And hopefully it translates into, at the end of the day, um, something where I'm still going to get my medications, but also for my employer, what does that look like? Are we going to be, you know, more advantageous because of my decisions, my little decision right here, does it make a big difference? And yes, it does. Great. A lot of the attendees today are going to be in, in various different stages of their benefit program, uh, self-insured, fully insured, um, and may, some may get access to their actual claims. I'm pretty certain if you look at a report, they're not going to know what that report means. So what support do you give, Richard, to, to those employers in regards to their, their pharmacy claims reports that they're receiving? Yeah, so I think access to data, I would probably argue, is probably the, uh, the toughest thing just to know what is available. Um, we talked about the transparency. A lot of things are either hidden or they're just put in a kind of grouped in an aggregate to show, look, this is your performance there. Just trust us. Um, but can we, can we uncover some of this and look at the data? And what, what we typically do, we'll go in um, with our, our multifaceted approach. We have a team of, of actuaries, um, strategic account executives, and pharmacists like me. And we'll look in and see contractually, are there opportunities for savings? Is your discount uh, competitive? Is it up to market averages right now? Rebates? Are you are you getting 100% or not really? And then going beyond that and looking what's driving your trends. What are the emerging trends that we're seeing? And are you falling into that? And clinically, um, from my standpoint, what can we do to either impact that or drive patients or members back to the um, most appropriate medication? Perfect. 
Well, I think that answers all the questions that we have. Um, thank you again to, to April and Richard for joining us today. Your expertise, your insight, just kind of your really kind of fit to, to me as real answers uh, really helped me learn a lot today. So I appreciate it. But, you know, these indeed are really challenging times and it does really truly pay off to have a strategic partner who sees your business holistically and helps you balance both short-term and long-term objectives to not only survive during this pandemic, but really in the long run and really help to navigate through post-pandemic. So as you need it, uh, One Digital's strategic workforce consultants are here to really provide you with that expert guidance and support to navigate through these really challenging times, changing laws, and the continual regulations that evolve on a continual basis. So don't hesitate to reach out to any of our One Digital team members at any time. So thank you again. I just want to remind everyone today, you can view this employer advisory session and all the other past sessions on our website at onedigital.com. Uh, you'll also receive an email with a copy of today's recording, uh, the slide, you know, any of the information that we have um, and any supporting assets to this, this session. So I hope everyone uh, stay safe, healthy, stay connected with your family, friends and colleagues, and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks.